Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you again on this lovely early spring, late winter morning. We're continuing your series in John's Gospel, and our reading today is from chapter 2, and we're beginning from verse 13. This is a difficult technical passage, so I'm warning you early that uh, today has some technical elements to it, this sermon. Um, I've tried to make it as applied as I can, but I'm going to have to ask you to stay with me and work hard this morning with the text. So uh, that's a kind of yellow triangle warning that you get at the beginning of movies. This movie contains do 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 Well, this sermon contains things of a theologically challenging nature. Let's read God's word together. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. This is God's word. Let me pray as I uh, open this passage with you this morning. Ask for the Lord's help. Father, as we come to this challenging and difficult passage from your word, we pray that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to obey and eyes to see the Lord Jesus in a fresh way. And we ask that having seen him in a fresh way, we may be called to follow him more closely. Amen. Now, if you've ever visited any European countries in the Mediterranean basin, you'll be aware of the importance of temples in the ancient Roman world. They were so important to the Romans that if you defaced a temple or desecrated it in some way, it would cost you your life. It was a capital offence 
in those days. Now, that takes a bit of grasping for us where graffiti on buildings has achieved almost an art form status. But in the ancient world, Banksy wouldn't be in a safe place. So the Romans were twitchy about their temples. So were the Jews. <coughs> of course, they only had one temple. And it, of course, was in Jerusalem. And it's difficult for us not only to understand why the Romans venerated temples so much and had defacing them as a capital offence, it's also difficult for us to overestimate just how special the temple was to Jewish people. They had good reasons for venerating their temple because this was not only the place where they went to worship. It was much more than that. This was the place where God himself came down in person once a year to meet with them on that great day of atonement. Now, that's quite unique in world religions and through history. We've no modern match for this today across our world. It's not like their equivalent of coming to church, going to the temple. Much more than that. The closest we have in our world today is the Islamic view of Mecca, where Muslims are encouraged to visit at least once in their lifetime. But even then... Even then, it's not as powerful as this image because, because Allah doesn't come down once a year in Mecca. So the temple was a very powerful expression of God's relationship with his people. It was where they met with God and more importantly, it was where God met with them. It was where their relationship with God was restored through their sacrifices. It was where their sins were declared forgiven by the priest. As we come to our text today, <coughs> we're looking at the cleansing of the temple. And those of you who are uh, theological, um, theologically aware will know that there's other mentions of cleansing the temple in other Gospels, much later in the life of Jesus just before his death and resurrection, actually. So there's a big debate that I'm not going to bother you with today about whether there's actually one temple cleansing or two, whether John moved this to, uh, for literary purposes or whatever. I'm going to go with the straight reading of this, that this is the first of two cleansings. Because the two are different. The, the other two, or the last, the last cleansing that we read of in, in, in the other Gospels, um, provide the last straw for Jesus. And after that second cleansing, the Jewish authorities decided they really had to get rid of Jesus. But there's no evidence here of that level of opposition. This is an early warning bell for the Jewish people that this man was going to be a bit troublesome. So this cleansing of the temple took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I want you to see it with me this morning as a statement of intent. It's a statement of massive theological significance, way beyond uh, anything that we, so far removed from it, might uh, see at first reading. So let's get into the text and look firstly at some delusions that this 
passage surfaces. There are three of them. Uh, uh, oh, and by the way, my first point is a very long one, and my second and third and the conclusion are much shorter. So please don't, by the time I get to the second point, think, don't tell me he's got another two and a half of them to go. I want to think with you uh, about external forms of worship. It's important to recognise that what was going on here in terms of the money changers and the livestock sellers was actually legitimate. Every Jew was expected to offer half a shekel of silver for temple tax, for temple maintenance. But the temple only wanted one currency. And remember, people were coming from all over the Greek or Roman world to Jerusalem, especially at Passover time. So in Jerusalem, you had to convert your currency to Tyrian silver, which was the highest quality of silver. <coughs> and that was the, the quality that the, the, the Jewish authorities wanted to, uh, the, the temple authorities wanted to use. But also, you wouldn't have expected worshippers to bring their animals all the way from Spain and Italy to Jerusalem to sacrifice them, would you? <coughs> you would expect it was quite legitimate to buy them when you got there. Friends, I've got all sorts of respiratory problems. Please forgive me. <coughs> I just knew this was going to happen today. I had a bad feeling about it. <coughs> so, you didn't expect your worshippers to, to, to travel from Italy and Spain and, and Greece to Jerusalem with uh, their doves and their sheep in tow. Not unreasonable to buy them when they got there. Now, originally the vendors, the people that had these stalls, they'd set up business in the Kidron Valley, just down the slope from Jerusalem, which, is, which sits on quite a steep hill. But as their business profited and as, as they became a bit more influential, they kind of moved up the hill and eventually found their way into the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court that surrounded the really holy part of the temple where only Jewish people could go. But the court of the Gentiles was important because it was a place where people who weren't Jews but had come to faith in God could come and worship. <coughs> The problem was that what had begun as a legitimate business enterprise had now taken over to the point where worship was now impossible among the animal droppings and the sellers buying, uh, vying for custom. Now, the important thing to recognise here is that the thing itself wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong to change money into Tyrian silver. It wasn't wrong to buy your animals to sacrifice closer to the temple. And having the right silver and the right animal and the right kosher meat was important. But what happened was that keeping the forms of worship so right had actually taken over to the point where meaningful worship was impossible. So in this place, the Gentile court, where non-Jews came to worship God, <coughs> Jesus says in the other cleansings of the temple 
My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Do you see that emphasis on the outward-looking evangelistic nature of the Jewish nation? They were meant to be a light to the Gentiles, to draw people in, to be a missionary or uh, enterprise. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. They were by their actions effectively preventing the nations of the world from coming to worship and keeping it all themselves, do you see? In fact, the word a den of thieves, the word thief or robber, in that sense, in, in that text, has the same meaning as a, a, a nationalist terrorist or a guerrilla. <coughs> the same word that's used of Barabbas, if you remember. Now, Barabbas was a robber, a thief, a, a, a nationalist zealot. He was a Jewish nationalist. So what was happening here was that the, the forms of worship had actually become so important that non-Jewish people weren't able, who, who believed in Yahweh, weren't able to come and worship. In other words, the forms got in the way of worship. That's an important principle. So that's the external challenge and the delusion externally. The internal one is... Equally interesting. <clears throat> By contrast to the later cleansing of the temple, here the charge from Jesus is different. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? <clears throat> so not only had the forms of worship stopped people worshipping, they'd actually forgotten who they'd come to worship in the first place. Now we've seen that before in the Old Testament, haven't we? The prophets are full of this kind of stuff. In Hosea 6, 6, just to pick one verse, <coughs> Hosea says, or God says to the people through Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And elsewhere in the prophets, God says to the people, your sacrifices and your offerings, they stink. They're not a pleasant smell to me, they stink. So this incident helps us understand and illustrates that the nature of true worship is important. And what John's doing here is he's setting the scene for what's coming later in the gospel. Because by the time we get to John 4, in a few weeks' time for you, <clears throat> Jesus will solve a centuries-old dispute between Jews and Samaritans about where worship should take place. Should it take place, according to the Samaritans, on Mount Gerizim, their holy place, or should it take place on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Jewish holy mountain? Spoiler alert, Jesus says it's not about spaces and places. It's not actually about a temple at all. It's not whether yours is right or theirs is right, because spaces and places aren't sacred anymore. Now, there's a word of caution for us here too on that. <clears throat> Because we often fall into this trap ourselves when we call our congregational places like the space that we're in today, when we call it by special words like sanctuary, do you see? This building, this room is no more holy than your lounge or your kitchen or your bedroom or your bathroom or your office or anywhere else you live your life. Because worshipping God is about a person. It's not about a locus. It's not about a place. It's not tied to a place. So you don't come here to worship. Well, you do. But it's not the only place that worship takes place, do you see?
And that takes us to the profound impact that this kind of thinking has on the Christian church. Because in 1 Corinthians 11 and following, where we're going to read a bit from in our communion section, Paul is dealing with divisions in the Corinthian church. And because the church in Corinth was divided, Paul uses quite an interesting technique. He tips his hat in one direction and then he tips it in another direction because he's trying to bring people together. So on the one hand, he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. On the other hand, he says, but marriage is a good thing and it's created by God and it's fine for others. Uh, On the one hand, he'll say, it's it's okay to eat meat offered from an idol. And on the other hand, he's saying, but if you're going to offend somebody by doing that, then you might want to think about just leaving it because it's not that big a deal. I speak in tongues more than anyone on the one hand, but I'd rather speak five words in a language that everyone understands when I'm with the people of God, you see? So he's, he's balancing things back and forward. Yes, but. Yes, but. But when he comes to the congregational meeting of the people of God around the Lord's table, he, he, he does not have a yes. There is no good thing to say. What he ends up saying to them is, I've got nothing good to say about when you get together to worship because your meetings are doing more harm than good. More harm than good when we get together as the people of God. My goodness. Paul can't find one good thing to say about the way they're conducting themselves corporately. In other words, it's possible in our corporate worship to pull down the the, the condemnation of God himself. And one of the ways in which we do that is by making this the only place where worship happens. Jesus treated the corporate worship of the temple in that way. He's basically saying to these people, what you're doing here is harming the cause of God, not advancing it. It's exclusive. It's forbidding worship. It's preventing it. Now, to expand this further, I want to take uh, a bit of a detour into some definitions. And I want to think about worship with you around uh, ritual and reality. In the Old Testament, worship was tied up with all of these things that we've mentioned. Special places, special rituals, special symbols, special artifacts, special places, special people, special spaces. But in the New Covenant, when Jesus comes, all this changes. In the New Covenant, worship language is presented in another way. Romans 12, verse 1, says this. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's worship language in the New Testament. Now, what Paul's telling us there in Romans 12, 1, is that worship isn't something we do just at 10.45 on Sunday, the 27th of February, 2022, or whatever future date may come our way. It says that your spiritual worship is removed from spaces, places, smells, bells, special people, and special clothes, and special days. And it becomes something you do with all of your life, every moment of every day. Do you see? Now compare that with how we sometimes think about worship. So we know that in our heads, but how do we think about it? And, 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 and our language gives it away. And I was guilty of it this morning in the car. When it... I've got a driving ban, not because I was a bad driver, but because my 
chest gave me some problems and I passed out. So my wife's had to drive me around for six months. So she's driving me here this morning. That's why I was here in time today. <clears throat> so she drove me here this morning and on the way up she said, I've never been to Hamilton Baptist, quite looking forward to it. And I said, what's it like? And I said, well, they've got a really good worship band. And then I thought, Duh! <laughs> you've just done what you're going to tell the folks in Hamilton Baptist not to do. You're going to use worship language in a very exclusive way. Do you see? Do you see how naturally we fall into this? Because worship's often thought of as the first part of the service, isn't it? We have the worship, then we have the preaching. And actually all of our lives are worship. We sometimes think that all during the week we can do our thing and then come here uh, and what happens out there isn't worship and then we come to church and the first bit's worship. That's even more exclusive, isn't it? More exclusive of what's happening now. So not only have we restricted worship to a service, we've even restricted it to a part of a service. It's quite remarkable. So ritual's a problem. Uh, and I want to counter that by, by talking about the reality, because as I've already said a couple of times, when you see worship in the New Testament, it isn't a set of rituals, it's all of life. Every conversation, every action, what we spend our money on, what we do with our time. It's being God-centered from the minute we wake up till the minute we are drums. We've got it just as wrong as, as the money changers. And if we can think we can come together in corporate worship, when in fact we're sitting here steeped in lust, addicted to porn or duping the inline revenue or not speaking to people in the fellowship or screaming at the wains in the car on the way here and then putting on the face because we're here to worship, then Jesus might want to take the whip to us as well. That's a thought, isn't it? Second point. This difficult text in verse 17. Devotion. The text tells us, his disciples remembered, zeal for your house has consumed me. Now this is a direct quote from Psalm 69 verse 9. And to understand it, we need to go back to put it in its context. In the context, King David is suffering because those he trusts and those closest to him have been shown to be untrustworthy and they've betrayed him. And as he thinks about that, as he reflects on that, he thinks, do you know, my passion, my zeal for God and for his things and for his house. Remember David had that passion to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Do you remember that story? My passion for all of that, my passion as God's anointed king, has cost me everything. It might yet cost my life. You see, it had consumed him to the point where it was ultimately going to destroy him. Jesus fits that category. As God's anointed king, Jesus comes and figuratively says, because I have such zeal, such passion, such obsession for your house, your mission, your presence, your glory, it will consume me. 
It will cause me suffering to the point where it will ultimately destroy me. It will burn me up. Do you see, it, the text doesn't mean it will consume me with zeal. It doesn't mean I'm going to become even more passionate. That's not what it means. It means that the zeal I have will consume me. It will destroy me ultimately. So although the Jews expected a messianic king, when he came, they didn't see him in a category that had him as a suffering servant. Someone who was going to be destroyed effectively by his own passion for God's glory. And even the disciples didn't really understand that because John tells us, remember John's writing his letter much later than the other gospel writers. And John's reflecting as an old man looking back and he's saying, Do you know, we didn't get that. We only remember that later. And we know in verse 22 in the text, the disciples only really believed, as we'll see in a minute, after Jesus had been raised from the dead. They, they, they kind of got it then. So the temple is cleansed by Jesus at the beginning of his ministry to show that his mission would ultimately be carried out by his own destruction. Isn't that remarkable? And the Jewish leaders just could not get their hands around that. They didn't have a category for a self-destructing or a suffering Messiah. The Messiah for them was someone who was going to ride in to Jerusalem and drive the Romans out and be done with this occupation forever and re-establish the temple in all its former glory. Now, at this stage, the temple, 46 years in the rebuild, still hasn't been finished. There's restoration work still going on as Jesus is speaking here. So the Jews then say to Jesus, what signs can you give us to prove your credentials or your authority to behave like this and, and turf all these people out of our domain? Now, do you think maybe that Jesus was being viewed by them as a Ned who had spray-painted a bus? Well, I don't think so. There were many laws on the books back then to deal with cheap hooliganism. But the Jewish leaders had already heard and seen what Jesus had said and done previously. Here was someone you couldn't just dismiss as a cheap hooligan. So now they raise this question and stand over him to judge him. But little do they know that, just as today, if Jesus is who he says he is, we don't stand in judgment over him. He stands in judgment over us. And Jesus' answer to that question, what signs can you give us to prove your authority to cast these people out and behave like this? His answer is shocking and confusing. Look what he says. And it doesn't seem like he's answering the same question, does it? What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. It seems like a disconnect. They were confused and, and we might be too. What does that mean? Destroy this temple. Well, firstly, John tells us, on retrospect, that ultimately he's referring to his body. 
But Jesus often didn't explain his ambiguous answers. He often spoke in parables and almost riddles in that sense. But what Jesus is really saying to the people here is, I'm the temple. It's me. The temple's actually, you're looking at the temple. I'm the real dwelling place of God on earth. I'm the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. And, and you know, to some degree, you can't really blame the Jews for not properly understanding this. It's an astonishing claim, friends. So imagine me getting up today and saying something like this to you. Everything you have ever heard before in all your holy writings or all your thinking and all your practice and all your rituals about, about where to meet God and how to meet God, forget it. From now on, you meet God through me. All right, big man, <laughs> you might be thinking. Or, oh, do you? Aye. Because you've only got two options. To either lock someone who says that away as a mad person, megalomaniac, narcissism gone mad, or to fall at his feet and worship him and take him at face value and believe that what he's saying is true. Yeah? They're the only two options. And that is why John wrote his gospel. And it's why I love John's writing so much, because he always gives you an explanation as to why he's doing what he's doing. John tells us at the end of his gospel why he wrote it. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I've written over lamb. In chapter 314 that you'll see next week when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he describes Jesus as the serpent lifted on the pole. He's the manna from heaven in, in chapter 6, verse 35. The bread of God that comes down. In chapter 15, is the true vine. And then there are three Passovers. This is one recorded in, in John's gospel. Jesus had three years of public ministry, so there were three Passovers. The third one was when he died. This was the first. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover, and he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath itself, the most holy day to Jewish people. That special day when they observed all their laws and all their rituals. In chapter 5.18, Jesus tells us that he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's, do you see what John's doing? He's teaching us to take the Old Testament and rethink how we interpret it in the light of Jesus. Because Jesus is coming along saying, that stuff's all pointing towards me, and now I'm here. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.17, he says... Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Now, that word fulfill is important. When Jesus says I've come to fulfill them, he doesn't mean he's come to do them. Nor does he, un he say I haven't come to, to do them. He doesn't say I've come to underline them. He doesn't say I've come to reinforce them. He doesn't say I've come to republish them. He says I've come to fulfill them. He views all of these things in the Old Testament, the whole law and the whole prophets, he views the whole thing as a prophecy about him, do you see? And when he comes, he fulfills all of it. He fulfills it. So 
So if you read the Old Testament properly, you'll realize that time and time again, it only points in one direction. And what Jesus is doing and saying here is that all the pieces of the Old Testament that talk about worship are pointing towards me. And he presents himself as the true, true place of worship and there is no other temple. But this is mightily challenging stuff because Jesus doesn't simply say, I am the temple. In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it. Now, already in John, we've seen building language used that was familiar to Jewish people to describe Jesus. Back in chapter 1 of John, if you can remember back a few weeks to when you did this, John uses tabernacle language. Do you remember? The word became flesh and tabernacle. That's the authorised version. I grew up with that in a very sound place in South Lanarkshire. It tabernacled amongst us. It, it lived with us for a wee while. Tabernacle was the tent of meeting, wasn't it? Where Jewish people met with God in the wilderness. So John has already used tabernacle language to describe Jesus' incarnation. So we meet with Jesus through his incarnation as the God-man, but that in itself, do you see, will not be enough to fully restore our relationship with God. We still need our sin dealt with. The disciples at this point still needed to go to the temple, didn't they? So how were they and us going to be able to meet with God fully? Well, it was going to be through the temple, but it wasn't going to be the restoration of the earthly temple that they were standing in at this moment that would enable their sin to be completely dealt with and to establish full access to God. It was going to be through the destruction and restoration of the true dwelling of God, Jesus, the temple, do you see? Jesus is saying that it is, it is his death and his resurrection that really establish his credentials and his authority as the true meeting place of man and God. And here the language is just so, so incredible. And John does this all the time right through his gospel and in Revelation, which we'll touch on in a second. Because he can conflate all of these things in one, in one great big set of images all at the same time. So follow this. Jesus is the temple where the sacrifices takes place. He is the temple. But he's also the sacrifice at the same time. And more, he's the priest who offers the sacrifice in the temple at the same time. He's all of it. Do you see? He's all of this at once. So it's Jesus' death and resurrection that give him this authority, and this is massively challenging because we need to constantly remember that the disclosure of God himself in Jesus to us is not just an abstract concept amongst others. It is anchored in history. It's not put forward as one option among many. It's the only option. It's validated in history by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The temple has been destroyed, but it's also been restored, and you cannot escape the history of the resurrection. And if you get to that point, everything else falls into place. And we sang it this morning. And I hope you weren't singing lies. 
I believe in the resurrection. Hallelujah. That's what it's all about. That's the defining feature of Christianity. That's what sets it apart from everything else. No wonder people were disorientated by this. And some of you looking a wee bit disorientated this morning. Thank you for your patience. No, you're not really. You've been great. Let's look at some of the disorientation that that caused. Firstly, as we've already indicated, the disciples didn't really get it at the time. John's honest enough to tell us that they only believed afterwards. Verse 22. Because they, like the Jewish leaders, didn't have a category for a suffering Messiah king. And even the glimpses that they had show how far off the mark they were. So the most famous the most famous statement by a disciple about the, about the nature and the identity of Jesus is Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 16, 16, where Jesus says, they're having a discussion together, the disciples and Jesus, and they're, they're debating who people, what, what the gloss is, you know, what the vibe is. Who, 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 does, who, who are people saying to be raised again? And that's the way it's going to happen. And Peter, of course, like all kind of, gallus goal scorers think well I've scored once I can score again and he comes in with a second attempt from further out this time no no Lord you've got all that bit wrong you were right the first I was right the first time and I'm right about this as well that that's that's never going to happen to you you're the Messiah you're the anointed one you're not going to end up you're different from all the other folk who have failed and and died and hope has been lost that's not going to happen to you you see, so uh, there's a wee salutary passing point here. It's actually possible to be so right in one area of theology and so wrong in another within the, the space of a single sentence, isn't it? Just like Peter was. So here's another important principle from this passage. Verse 22 teaches us that the disciples, as they came to faith in the Gospels, is different from our coming to faith. For them to come to full Christian faith took the passage of time. See, they saw it gradually as Jesus unfolded things to them. We've already seen that John tells us they didn't believe at that time. For them to come to full Christian faith took the resurrection of Jesus and then Pentecost after that. So it's important as we read the Gospels that we don't read them as a pattern for evangelism in order to help us understand how people come to Jesus. It's not why they were written. The Gospels are there to call us to faith by teaching us that Jesus is the Son of God, the suffering Messiah who conquered through dying. Then we have the issue of power religion in this difficult little section right at the end of the passage. Because some saw Jesus' miraculous signs and believed, but the text says something interesting. Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. So what's going on here? Well, here were people who were interested in the superficial. They liked the spectacular. They were fascinated by Jesus' power, but they hadn't come to grips with the suffering servant. 
They weren't like the Jewish leaders who didn't believe. They did believe, but they were believing on the back of the spectacular stuff. They too had no category for a suffering servant. And you know, we can sometimes think of Jesus in similar ways in our own lives. The Jesus who practices power religion, the Jesus who fixes our marriage, the Jesus who's the fixer, the Jesus who stabilizes our children, Jesus who gives us a social framework within which we can function in a church. Kind of me-centered faith that likes the glitz and glamour. But Jesus isn't presented by John and the gospel writers as the son of God who is your social worker. He's presented as the son of God who is your saviour. I saw one of the most moving clips that I've seen in a long time on Twitter this week. It was of a video of a Ukrainian family in a rather sparse back kitchen, about eight of them, singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. They don't need a social worker. They need a saviour that they can hold on to. And so do we. That anchor in the storm. So here were people who were into power religion. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in men. He knew they were only interested in the superficial. So as we wrap all this together and finish, and thank you for your patience, both with the chest and with the content. This passage isn't the final picture of Jesus as the temple of God. If your theology of the future has within it the need for a physical temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, then have another look at this passage. Given that Jesus has already said that he's the temple in the new covenant, And, and also think about where next we see Jesus and the temple mentioned together in, 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 the, in the Bible. Well, we see it in another book that John wrote, don't we? We sang about it earlier in one of our first songs, Revelation 21, 22. We have a picture of the new Jerusalem. It was impossible for first century Christians, for first century Jews to think about Jerusalem without thinking about a temple. Keep that in mind. And we see a new Jerusalem. And what's missing? John makes it clear. There was no temple in the city. Wow. What, a Jerusalem without a temple? That's unheard of. Why? Because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus himself is the temple fully, fully realized, you see. We will know God fully and forever through Jesus as our place of worship. He won't only be the person we worship forever, he is the place we worship. Because he fills all of heaven with his glory. And we will know him fully and personally forever because that temple that was his body that we're going to remember in a minute was destroyed. So that we could meet with God and live with him. 
So it's within that framework we need to look at ourselves and our society and our churches. We're not just helping people for now, although that's important. We're seeing the ongoing struggle of sin and decay in our world in the light of the suffering of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. The biblical model, the Messiah model, the Jesus temple model is destroy and restore. Suffer glory. And so we point people to Jesus, the meeting point between humans and God. And and we can only... It's only from that perspective that we can see what Jesus has achieved for us as the true and authentic temple of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your help with this passage. Thank you for opening it to us. We pray that you will help us to see Jesus in a fresh way and be drawn again to him, to see in him everything that we will ever need and to see in him all that you have done for us, both now and forever.